kind of like Tom's. I didn't really set out to start a business. I set out to feel better and live better myself. And I had the ability through my relationships and resources and reputation to get to meet with the top scientists from Stanford and Harvard and other amazing universities. And my question was simple. It was, you know, what has science proven? So don't give me a fad or a trend or whatever, or some crazy biohack. Like what has science proven in terms of practices and habits that you can show me work time in time again, that I can learn and adopt. That's Blake Mykoski, founder of Tom's Shoes and a new venture called Made For. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, and this is FOMO Sapiens, part of the HBR Presents Network. We live in a world of overwhelming options, and whether you're an entrepreneur, an executive, or just someone who wants to make the most out of your time and money, committing to just one thing can feel impossible. That's called FOMO, and it's short for fear of missing out. How do I know? Because I coined the term. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, the show where I ask entrepreneurial thinkers how they make personal and professional decisions in a world of overwhelming choice. FOMO. FOMO. Today, I want to talk about transitions. If you know me well, you'll likely have heard me say that I love transitions, and I'm not kidding about that. Of course, they're messy, but they're also opportunities to push yourself outside of your comfort zone and see what you're actually made of. And I know this from personal experience. As I've talked about in the past, during the 2008 financial crisis, I was working for a division of AIG. When the credit crunch hit, my shares in the company became worthless, and AIG became one of the principal targets of public anger and ridicule. While I was just a bit player in this global crisis, it hit me really hard, and it affected my mental health and my physical health. It also served as the catalyst for me to rethink my path and set off in a totally new direction, and it's one that has been immensely rewarding. The transition wasn't easy, but nowadays I wonder what would have happened if I'd never been forced to change what I was doing and come up with some new habits. And I guess the reason that I love transitions so much is that they can be a source of so much good. My guest today knows that all too well. Blake Mykoski is an entrepreneur and philanthropist best known for founding Tom's Shoes. The idea came from a trip he took to Argentina where he witnessed the hardships faced by children growing up without shoes. In response to what he saw, Blake pioneered a unique approach to business called One for One in which he gave away a free pair of shoes for each pair he sold. And get this, to date the company has given away some 100 million pairs of shoes to children around the globe. That's incredible. But here's the thing, Blake sold half the company for $300 million in 2014, and then something unexpected happened. He realized that he found himself in transition, but rather than feeling fulfillment at all that he had achieved, he felt lost and fell into depression. After consulting with scientists from Stanford, Harvard, and other leading universities to address his own challenges, Blake decided to start a new company, Made For, which is a 10-month program that applies the principles of modern neuroscience, psychology, and physiology to make your brain and body better. Blake's going to tell us how this all works and how we can create healthy habits. And then stick around for the full moment of the show. As you'll see in the interview, Blake talks a lot about how writing letters and journaling are critical to building new habits. So I decided to invite an expert on the topic, Samara O'Shea, to tell us more about the lost art of letter writing. By the way, since today's show does talk quite a bit about writing, I'd love it if you write to me. You can email me at letsconnectatpatrickmcginnis.com or find me on the socials. So let me know what you're thinking or what you'd love to see on future episodes of FOMO Sapiens. And now on to the interview. One of the reasons I actually wanted to talk to Blake was that he was responsible for giving me some pretty intense FOMO. When I discovered that someone was building a huge business based on a type of shoe called Apergatas that I'd loved way back when I lived in Argentina in college, it drove me absolutely nuts. So I had to come clean with him, and here's how it went down. 
I lived in Argentina in college for a year. I then lived there after I was investing in a bunch of companies there. And so I know Argentina well. And then one day I see these Tom shoes in the street in New York City. And I, and I love those shoes. I've been wearing those shoes. And I thought to myself, like, how did they get here? And I, then you built this huge business. And I always, it's that one business idea that I always thought to myself, like, I should have done that. And, you know, I know it takes a lot of hard work. I'm sure, you know, it's not fair of me to sit here and say like, oh, you know, I should have done that. But I always had that idea. In fact, I looked for other things to bring from Argentina. So I want to blame you for, um, and thank you for bringing them here, but also giving me FOMO. Oh, wow. That's a compliment. It's always funny when I meet someone who was aware of the Alpregata shoe that it was based on before, you know, we've made them popular uh, in the U.S. and around the world. So that's a great story. One of the things that I noticed early on that I loved about the brand and that, you know, I think a lot of people loved about the brand was you created an entirely new way of doing commerce, which is the one for one business model. So just to start out, I'd love to hear how you came up with that idea. You know, was this something that you'd been thinking about before? Did it occur to you in that moment in Argentina? And, and how did you sort of end up doing it? When people refer to it as a business model, it still makes me chuckle a little bit because the way that I came up with it really was as simple as, you know, I you know met some nonprofits helping kids get shoes in Argentina. I saw that there was a great need for children to get new shoes, shoes to go to school as part of their uniform. I discovered this cool Alpregata shoe that no one had, you know, I'd ever seen in the United States. And I literally said, like, it would be so cool to sell these shoes and every time we sell a pair, give a pair to a kid that needs a pair. And the reason why, uh, you know, we did it that way is it was just so much easier to keep track of than some, you know, percent goes to profit or, you know, percent to charity or this or that, which companies have done in the past. And the other thing is, is it's hard to imagine now, but we really weren't thinking of Tom's being a business. Like it wasn't even, we didn't even have a checking account. We didn't register it as a business. It was like a project. That was like this fun project that we were doing or I was doing and I had some friends helping me that would just help kids get shoes. And we actually it's interesting because everyone knows us as the one for one company. That phrase one for one was never even used by us until the third year of business. So we just said, hey, you buy a pair, we give a pair. And then and then people start saying, oh, it's one for one. Like, oh, that sounds smart. So we trademarked it. And that became a huge, you know, obviously part of our brand. But originally, it's just like it's really a simple way to keep track of it from an accounting perspective and make people, you know, kind of be connected to helping people by being totally transparent and giving a pair every time we sell a pair. And so when you started out, then it sounds like this was, you know, you were thinking about impact predominantly. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. It was not even a business. I mean, it was literally, we called it the Shoes for Tomorrow Project. And that's where the name Tom's comes from because we called them Shoes for Tomorrow Project. And then on the shoe, we were going to put on the label Tomorrow Shoes, but Tomorrow's is too long. So we shortened Tomorrow's to Tom's. And, and that's why people have been calling me Tom ever since. When was the moment when you knew that this Shoes for Tomorrow Project could actually become a business and actually then you, you know, amplify everything you wanted to do. The moment was, uh, an article came out in the LA times. It was, you know, on the cover of the calendar section, which gets a lot of people to read it on a Sunday. And that day we had 2200 orders on our website and we only had 130 pairs in my apartment. <laughs> so that was like, the, this is serious. Like if one article gets 2200 people to order, you know, sight unseen, 
we need to, we need, so I immediately just flew back to Argentina and we were making them in the guy's garage back then. We started getting more people to make them in their garages because it's really an artisanal thing to make them. And, um, and that's when I kind of knew like, oh, wow, like that's, we have something here. And for the next seven years, I just tried to hold on. You sold half of Tom's to Bain Capital Private Equity uh, back in 2014. And then shortly thereafter, you stepped down as CEO and you got to decide, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Which sounds like a great problem to have, right? If I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm like, well, it's, wow, that's really, sounds kind of awesome. But, you know, transitions are always times where we can learn and they're challenging and they're uncomfortable. And so tell us about your transition and sort of what you learned and how it set you up for this new stage of your life. You know, I wish there was a, a more positive uh, story here, but actually this marks, you know, kind of the most difficult, you know, year or two of my life. You know, I had, you know, made hundreds of millions of dollars for myself that I never anticipated when I started Tom's through the, through selling to Bain. I had helped, you know, tens of millions of kids get shoes and people get eyesight surgeries. Um, I, so I was very fulfilled from a business perspective and an entrepreneur perspective. Uh, I was married. I had a son, um, just had a son. I had, you know, so all my kind of family dreams were coming true. Um, I have great friends and family. I mean, really, I kind of had checked every box that I had been told as a young man was necessary to be a success, uh, in this, in this time. And, you know, what was interesting is after I had, after kind of the music stopped, so to speak, where I had time to sit and reflect and journal and go on long hikes and not be working 80, 90 hours a week, I recognized that two things had happened during the past, you know, decade of, of working like crazy. And I had started four companies before Tom. So really it was two decades of being an entrepreneur when I finally had a pause. And two things I recognized is I had neglected a lot of important self-care in my physical and mental health. And then the other thing is I had attached all my belief of what would bring me happiness and what would give me peace to external accomplishments and relationships. And so that was like a kind of ground zero, which took me to a state of depression. It was the first time I'd ever been diagnosed with depression in my life. Um, I didn't know what that felt like, but all of a sudden I was like, having trouble getting out of bed in the morning, not feeling very motivated, not feeling very connected to my wife, not feeling very, you know, connected to my friends. Um, and what I recognized was, is that I needed to do two things. One, I needed to really look at the areas, both physically and mentally, that I had neglected the practices and habits that other people were doing to keep them in a state of well-being. And number two, probably as important, is I needed to work from, uh, you know, really from the outside back in, I needed to look internally to see how I could take control over my well-being and not have it be attached to any type of external accolades, financial success, or relationships. And so as you discovered this, this actually became sort of the next phase of your life. So you decided to start a business based on your own personal experience going through this transition kind of like Tom's, I didn't really know, I didn't really set out to start a business. I set out to feel better and live better myself. And I had the ability through my relationships and resources and reputation to get to meet with the top scientists from Stanford and Harvard and other amazing universities. And my question was simple. It was, you know, what has science proven 
So don't give me a fad or a trend or whatever, or some crazy biohack. Like what is science proven in terms of practices and habits that you can show me work time in, time again, that I can learn and adopt? So really it was at my own personal kind of crusade or mission so that I could feel better and live better. But ultimately what I recognized, which was crazy, I never would have thought this would have been the case, is there were basic, very fundamental practices like how to optimize for the perfect night's sleep, how to have a gratitude practice and what that does to the neurochemistry in your brain, you know, having proper hydration. I mean, these were basic, basic things. But what the scientists taught me and what I learned was even though we all kind of know these things, very few humans actually have them integrate in their life in a sustainable way. And that's why I realized that there was an opportunity to create a program that could reach, you know, uh, a mass scale and help a lot of people with their mental and physical health. Research is me search, right? So you went through this very personal experience, something that seems counterintuitive. It's like, well, you know, how do I feel bad for somebody who just sold their business? Right. But, <laughs> exactly. Right. But, but, but we know the story. It's not that you're the first person that's ever lived through that, whether it's, you know, you think about that person who retires or, or they, maybe they're in a, a political leader and they exit office and they, they go into a new phase of life and all of the ground shifts and all of the things that the affirmation from outside and the grind that you just sort of run into every day that keeps you moving. Like when those things are removed, bad things happen. And that's precisely the moment where you need to start doing new things, forming new habits. So what is the process of starting new habits? You can't learn a habit or a practice simultaneously with other ones. Like you have to do one at a time and it takes 30 days to do it. There is real scientific evidence that you need to do something over and over and over again for long enough that it starts to become autonomous. So what we do with Made For is we give you one basic thing the minimum viable effort that you need to put into each month. And that's how you can actually not only learn something new, but actually retain it and sustain it. The second thing, and this is what people find the most interesting in this, you know, in this time and age, is the program is completely analog. So there's no digital app. There's no website to check in. There's no gadget that tells you how you're doing. We found that you know people have a very hard time learning something new when they're constantly distracted if they're trying to do it on their phone. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com slash FOMO. That's netsuite.com slash FOMO. netsuite.com slash FOMO. So can you explain how you designed the program and based it in science when, for example, a thing like gratitude that some people may say, oh, gratitude, give me a break. But no, there's, there is a scientific element to it. So take us into that. Now, uh, we have a great scientist from Stanford who has a lab there named Andrew Huberman. 
And we met Andrew very early on in our journey. Um, and Andrew really explained the way that neuroplasticity works in a very easy to understand way, which we then built into every single um, month so that you, we're using neuroplasticity to teach you these new things. And Blake, for the uninitiated, what is neuroplasticity? It's just basically the fact that your brain can change and it can grow and learn new things no matter how old you are. You've always heard like, oh, I'm too old to learn a new language or I'm too old to learn a new instrument. That is absolutely bull. Andrew always talks about attention, reward, and reinforce. And so I'll use our hydration month as an example to really show how the science works with attention, reward, and reinforce. So the first thing is, is in the box that you would get or the kit you would get for hydration, we have three things for you. We have number one, we have all the science, like deep, heavy science. We have hired an incredible writer to write in a very easy to understand way that you can read in 20 to 25 minutes. So it comes in a little booklet. It explains, has some graphs, different what things, but it explains exactly the science of hydration and why so many of our bodily functions are, 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 you know, really dependent on how well we're hydrated and how every person needs a different amount of water based on your diet, where you live, your activity levels, et cetera. And it also talks about the negative aspects if you are dehydrated, which we find that a large percentage of Americans are chronically dehydrated. So the first thing you get is this little book, 20, 25 minute read, not overwhelming, easy to commit to. The second thing is a physical tool that we designed. So we worked with the scientist on each month to design a tool that would be fun and engaging and help you learn the new habit. So for hydration, we designed a beautiful water bottle that helps keep track of how much water you're drinking throughout the day. And it specifically has a very tactile experience with these almost kind of like prayer beads that you move a bead every time you finish a bottle. So you get that dopamine hit which is the reward uh, every time you do it. So it's attention. The attention is, you know, really explaining the importance of hydration, um, giving you the, uh, the, the, the science behind it, having you commit to, you know, focusing on hydration for a month. The reward is moving the beads, but it's also the way that you feel. For some people, I mean, they've never drank more than a bottle or two of water a day, if that. A lot of them are drinking Diet Cokes and coffee all day long. And so when they start to feel that they don't need that coffee in the afternoon because they have so much more energy because they're properly hydrated, um, you know, it, it, it's incredible. And so that's also part of the reward as well as moving the beads. And then the reinforcement is a lot of our, our, our challenges. We are very big believers in journaling and kind of writing out how you're feeling and, 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 and oh, I drink X number of bottles today and this is how I feel or I'm noticing a difference because now that I'm focusing on doing something every day, I'm living with more intention. And so I'm actually taking that intentionality to my diet or to my workout routine or to whatever. And so those are the things that we make sure are hooks in each month. And that's how we help teach you uh, a new habit or practice. And what about gratitude? Because again, that one feels a little squishy. How does the month play out? And I guess, how do you develop sort of skills to be grateful as it progresses? We always start simple and then we make it more challenging throughout the month. At the beginning of the gratitude month, we're just like, it's a very simple, you know, five minutes of gratitude, either in the morning or the evening in your journal. The second thing is, and this gets a little bit more challenging, is we have you look at a time in your life where something negative happened. 
something that really felt tragic, really felt hard, really like, you know, you really um, suffered through this. And then we have you do a creative writing exercise where you actually write and thank that experience to see the good that came from it. The silver lining, as many people call it. And then by doing that the exercise, then the next time something happens, it seems to be negative. My brain has a little trigger that goes off. And goes, oh, hold on. What can we learn here? There might be something that we're actually grateful for down the road. Then we go into, you know, kind of the lost art of sending the handwritten note. You know, the, 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 it's incredible experience when you physically write a thank you note to someone. And it can be simple. So we give you these already paid for addressed postcards. And we say this week, write three thank you notes to someone who's either done something for you recently or something from way back when, and just put them in the mail and then see what happens when they receive them. And then the last part of the gratitude, um, which I think is and has been such a beautiful experience with so many of our members, is we try, we ask you to think of the person in your life that you're most grateful to, but that you've never really thanked. Handwrite a letter to them expressing in very good detail what they did and how it has had such an impact on your life. Then either if you can, ideally in person, set the a time to go to lunch or dinner with them without telling them what, you know, kind of the purpose is. And then at that meal, bring out the letter, read it to them, and then give it to them as a gift. That series of gratitude exercises has been what scientifically has helped that changing you from someone who says, oh, I'm grateful to, oh, no, I actually know how to go to these tools to experience gratitude whenever I need that that kind of experience in my life. And and, it, and we make it a habit. So it kind of reminds me of training for a marathon. It's right. You, you start running small distances and then you, you gradually increase until by the end of your training, you can actually run the whole marathon. You build up that muscle memory, you build up that endurance, and then you take away the knowledge that you can do it. So it's also about mindset. Made for is really about shifting your mindset to a growth mindset and really shifting your just overall behavior uh, so that you can accomplish anything in your life that you want to. Now, I want to I want to ask you, you know, this is about creating new habits and mindsets. And I, and I like the fact that you clarify that it's not about, you know, that you're just going to change everything about your life for the rest of your life, because that's pretty hard to do. But but you're in you're in, you know, week two of the month and you just you're not you're not it's not working for you. You're not able to come up with this habit. Like what how do you help people to reinforce their habits if they're having trouble? One thing we found, we had a beta test that. Last year, we had 1,300 people go through the program simultaneously. And one of the things we learned was to this question of accountability and, and support. And what we found was the best accountability and support were other people going through the program. So now we highly, highly encourage you to do the program with a friend, with a coworker, with a spouse. Or we also have a private Facebook group that we have an incredibly high participation in. Right. That makes sense because accountability is so critical to sticking with habits you're trying to form. Now, Blake, as I listen to you, I, I keep asking myself the same question, which is, you know, he's done this a bunch of times. So does it get easier? Is this easier than building Tom's? I, I don't know if it would, I mean, gets easier. I would just say it's a lot more um, enjoyable right now because I don't need to make any more money. And I don't need any more business accolades. And so I'm, you know, putting all this time, energy, and resources into made for 
because I want to help people live better lives. I want to have people not get to the point to where I got to, and I want people to flourish. And so it comes from such a pure place, largely because I don't have to do it anymore. And so that's kind of a, I think a beautiful thing that I've experienced so far is I get to do this with just total freedom uh, and no expectation. And I think that's proving to be a really secure place to launch something that is hopefully going to help millions of people. Now, I can imagine some of our listeners right now who are entrepreneurs are thinking to themselves, sounds really good, but you know, he told us that in order to build Tom's to the size that it was, he basically worked himself into the ground to the point of burnout and neglected a bunch of relationships and that, you know, and they're wondering, you know, is it possible? Like, is that just a necessary evil of building a big business or is it possible to kind of have them both? So you've lived through it. What do you think? I think the answer is a little bit more nuanced um, because I do think there are times in an entrepreneurial venture um, where you just got to put your head down and, and um, you know, but I also think that the experience of Tom's would have been more enjoyable had I learned some of these lessons, like if just my sleep, for instance, if I would have known what I know today about how to really optimize your sleep and prepare yourself properly for a good night's sleep, how to wake up and not have cortisol spikes the minute you get up, like that in itself would have made me a more effective entrepreneur and leader at Tom's, you know, um, and I would have had more stamina to actually do the work that I need to do. Um, so, so I think that I don't think you have to neglect everything to build a successful business. I think you have to be prepared to make sacrifices for sure. But I also think that you can do it with a higher uh, sense of personal care that will actually make you more effective. So it kind of sounds like what you're saying is it doesn't get easier, but it doesn't have to be as hard, which sounds counterintuitive, but, but I get your point. You can find out more about Made For at GetMadeForIt.com, and Blake is offering FOMO Sapiens listeners an exclusive 20% discount on the program. The discount code you're going to use for that is MFFOMO, MFFOMO. And if you want to find out more about Blake, you can find him on Instagram at Blake Mykoski. All right, Blake, thanks for stopping by. Hey, thank you so much. That was a great conversation. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO Sapiens? Now, that right there was Portuguese, and as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. And now it's time for the faux moment of the show. And today I wanted to go deeper on some of the practices that Blake just mentioned, namely writing letters and journal entries. That's why I decided to call in an expert, Samara O'Shea, who is the author of two books on the topic. The first one is called For the Love of Letters, A 21st Century Guide to the Art of Letter Writing. And the other is called Note to Self on Keeping a Journal and Other Dangerous Pursuits. Dangerous. Gotta love that. To start off our discussion, I asked Samara what it takes to write a good letter these days. 
Well, the good news, Patrick, is in the 21st century, what it takes is effort. People aren't really writing letters anymore. So if you're putting pen to paper, handing that to someone, mailing it to someone, you're already ahead of the game. I don't think the language matters as much as it used to. Now, if you happen to be a wordsmith, then it's going to make the letter that much more powerful, that much more memorable. You know, someone's going to hold on to it. It'll end up in their photo album. But I think just deciding you're going to do it and doing it and the element of surprise, the person not expecting it, receiving it, is what makes a great letter (laughs) in the age of not having to write letters. And you actually just wrote me a letter. I, I just was thinking of this. You wrote me a letter when my book came out and you couldn't come to my book party. And it did surprise me and it was great. And I actually kept it, which I think is one nice thing about letters is oftentimes we end up keeping them. Now, here's the thing though. Writing a letter, I every time I write a letter, it takes me like four times. I go through all my stationery because I keep on changing my mind about what I want to say. So how can we be more efficient about writing letters? Well, I'll tell you a secret. Um, if, if the plan is for a handwritten note, it doesn't matter how you get there. I always type my letter before I handwrite it. So the spelling and the other errors, and like you say, you change your mind five times, you know, you write, you draft, you read it, you change it. And then once you're happy with it, then copy it into your own handwriting. Wow. You just saved a lot of trees for the world. <laughs> Oh my God. (laughs) Now you've also written a lot about journaling. And in today's episode, um, Blake mentioned that there was a lot of journaling happening. And I imagine it's different than writing letters. So how is it different? And what is the key to, I guess, effective journaling? It's interesting because it can be just like writing letters. For, For a lot of people, I recommend they write unsent letters. If you have a message you need to say to someone, you you know, it's just going to cause trouble. If you actually say it, then you write the letter in your journal. And then in other ways, journaling doesn't resemble letter writing at all, where you could do a stream of consciousness journal. You know, you're just writing down little tidbits of your day. There's not really a lot of organization. So it's basically up to the writer, whatever, um, where, where you find your freedom. Um, and I like journal writing for that reason. There is no format. Nothing has to be perfect. You know, we're not wasting trees like we are. Uh, when we write and rewrite letters. Now, Samara, have you thought differently about letter writing during quarantine? It's come back to me in that, um, you know, the new year came and it was a very busy year. And then all of a sudden it wasn't as busy. And I, once I realized quarantine um, wasn't a fad, it wasn't just going to be two or three weeks. I um, ordered some blank correspondence notes because I knew I wanted that to be a part of this for me to write to friends and relatives and just let them know I'm thinking of them. And it's kind of a way to capture just the this, this strangeness uh, that's going on with everyone right now. And do you think that it's something that you will maintain once sort of life gets back to normal? I think it is. Yes. I mean, I, I am a, a dedicated letter writer. I'll be honest. I, you know, life gets busy. You can't always do it. Even during quarantine, I, like many people, am working from home and homeschooling my stepson. So I don't do it every day, but, you know, one or two a week. And I, you know, I feel really good about that. So yeah, I do hope to continue. So Samira, you're an expert on letter writing. You've written a book on the subject and you've written a lot of letters and received a lot of letters over the years. So is there one that stands out for you? Uh, There is actually. I am proud to say I have some hate mail from James Joyce's grandson. (laughs) (laughs) What? Yes. Tell us more. His name is Stephen (laughs) Joyce. Um, He was the sole living descendant of James Joyce until January of this year. I just recently saw that he passed. 
And he was just a combative man. He charged outrageous fees to reprint Joyce's work and a lot of times just straight up told people they couldn't quote Joyce's work. So anyway, in 2005, I was working on my first book and wanted to print an erotic letter that James Joyce wrote to his wife, Nora. And just a quick Google search told me that there's no way Stephen Joyce was going to you know, allow me to do this. But I had to ask. So I wrote him a letter and he wrote me back. He hand wrote a letter and basically told me to go pound sand. Um, I'm summarizing. He didn't say that verbatim, but the letter's on my website if anyone is interested. But uh, yeah, I have it framed. And, you know, I, I appreciate that he took the time to write me back and say no. I think the takeaway there is that Stephen Joyce didn't have any FOMO. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Samara O'Shea, uh, thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me. And if you want to check out that letter from Stephen Joyce or check out Samara's work, go to SamaraOshea.com and definitely read the letter. It is, it's over the top. FOMO. And that's the end of another episode. If you have an idea, a story, or a question, you can find me on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, and at www.patrickmcginnis.com, where you can also take the official FOMO Sapiens diagnostic and find out if you're a FOMO Sapiens. FOMO Sapiens is part of the HBR Presents Network. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstrom. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it at Spotify and at iTunes. And as always, you can find me at patrickmcginnis.com.